Hello folks and welcome back to the podcast. You'll remember a couple of weeks ago we spoke to a couple of gentlemen, both called John Barrett, bizarrely, for our Strawberry Studios Forever podcast. Now, John Barrett uh, was the organiser of the gig, but Jonathan Barrett, aka Baz, was the talented fellow who acted as stage manager for that great gig. But we had a longer conversation with him that gave some fantastic insights on his time actually working at Strawberry Studios. He was there right up to the very end when Strawberry had to sadly close in 1993. We think you'll really enjoy this. Welcome back to The Consequences Podcast with Paul McNulty and Sean McCreevy. You mentioned before uh, that that tantalising phrase that you you cut your teeth at Strawberry, and we know you've got some amazing stories from from that place, Baz. Um, can we indulge ourselves just to, to to hear some of those? Yeah, I mean, I suppose the most relevant to uh, to this particular podcast was uh, on my. It was actually my second day, my first day. You know, when you start at a new place and you get sent for a long stand. Yeah. Uh, so there was two studios. There was Yellow 2 and there was Strawberry. And I got sent to Strawberry and it was a BBC session. It was a Latin BBC orchestra. And I got told to make make sure they were all right for coffee. It's a 30-piece orchestra or something <laughs> and a 12-man production crew. So, um, yeah, I knew where the kettle was. Um, yeah. right. But the second day, my job was to clear out the tape store oh. and, um, and move it to... Uh, a, a newly a newly built part of the studio or a newly refurbished part of the studio. And in the process of moving those tapes, so the first tapes we're moving were the original one-inch eight-tracks, which would have covered, the, I mean, I guess maybe the second phase of Strawberry. I, I think they started on four-tracks. Yes. And um, a lot of those were TNTC, Sad Cafe, uh, a lot of stuff that I hadn't heard of, but uh, yeah, I mean, like, it, and some names I did recognize. And but as the tapes got bigger to the 16 track and then to the two inches, and especially the master tapes, uh, as we moved them, they I had a slow dawning sense. I mean, I was, I think I was 17 and probably horribly arrogant. <laughs> but by the by the time we got halfway through the half inch stereo masters and I, I found that for what was relevant to me in my generation is I found Stone Rose's unreleased stereo master tape. Wow. It was done at Strawberry and produced by Martin Hannett. And members of that band went on to be in the high. And I've also worked with the Roses as well. So when I found that, even though I knew they'd recorded there, it was a connection between like a like a lightning bolt connection of between mm. what I was passionate about as a, a consumer of music, mm. what I was passionate about as a sound engineer, and then it was actually connected to that place.
But the other two things that came out of that, apart from finding Joy Division, the 24-track Master of Love will tear us apart, and New Order, other things that made connections with me. In, as we cleared the tape store, it turned out it was an echo chamber. Mm. Uh, its previous life, and they just put shelves in there. And um, there was a little rail for the speaker, and the, there was another little rail where they, apparently they had the mic stands screwed to the floor because that's the perfect place. And uh, it's, you know, that would have been, that would have probably been before they even had the plates at Strawberry. Mm -hmm. um, because that's what you had to do, build a little echo chamber. And the, the whole wall was studded with maybe two by one inch little bits of hardwood screwed at different angles to increase the reflection time, right. which in itself would have taken, that, you know, days of labour to get that done. And um, that would probably, if you could rebuild it, you could probably rebuild the snare sound you used to get at Strawberry. Wow. So, but that, that realisation, we just, on the module, we just studied the building of chambers. Wow. So just to see that revealed. Anyway, as we finished, I tripped over a cardboard box, <laughs> which I picked up, and was full of tape loops of the 10CC, I'm Not In Love. Now, I knew what they were, but I, I didn't imagine they would be in a box. I mean, there was a load of loose crap on top of them. But as I pulled them out, it's like Graham in C, Graham in G, and they were the loops. Wow. Around the studio. And that, that absolutely brought home to me that, yes, I knew that 10CC had built that studio. Yes, I knew it had a very rich and important Manchester history, but I could just in the space of 15 minutes, I think I found Stone Roses, then New Order, then realised it was an echo chamber and then found the 10CC. <laughs> That's list. incredible. And you, and you can see that half of that tape store now, Baz, is, is behind my shoulder. Can you see them sitting yeah. there on the little table? Yeah, yeah we, we, we've got a, a regular supply of these blooming things now. And honestly, the treasures that are, that are being unearthed, it's, it's, we're having to pinch ourselves. When, when you were moving that stuff, Baz, were you also archiving it? Had anybody written oh, down? No. So it was literally <laughs> no, just... It was, it was moved about four times. <laughs> so it was just, just moving it to clear some space. It was never logged or anything like that. Basically, the, the rear of the building had been... The rear first floor and the top floor have been refurbished into offices. Mm -hmm. um, and the yellow two was where all the administration was being done, but it was very cramped. And um, I, I think the decision to close yellow two or maybe um, repurpose it um, had gone ahead and they wanted to make the most of the space at Strawberry to keep Strawberry open. Right. So right. Th there was they'd cleared out partition walls. And so there were miles of shelf space, which were empty. We're right. going to try and rent the offices out. It didn't look very good. Right. And the front part of the building had the best light and that's where the tape store was. And it was all blocked up. I mean, I think mm. when I walked up, you could the, the breeze blocked up the windows and stuff like fiberglass. So it, did, it looked like a squat when you walked up. <laughs> the so I think there were, you know, I think there were lots of decisions in control of that process, but logging it wasn't. And I, I never, I, apparently there was, used to be a tape log, but um, I never found one in the six years I was there. Right. And say so we've never seen a comprehensive log. We have in our possession like hundreds of photocopied sheets of tape boxes 
but which is good and this is great for us but it's even that's incomplete you can see it's vastly incomplete yeah it's, so it's I, pretty I random isn't it it's random yeah, yeah. i mean i yeah. think more than once i mean we my old band recorded in there and i got i got a phone call when the studio finally closed and um yeah, some said, oh, I've just found your two-inch masters in a skip outside the studio. Mm. And, um, I mean, I'm not, you know, I'm not suggesting anything, you know, we were a very small band, but when I went and picked them up from him, there were, you know, there was lots of stuff there. That, I mean, the, a, a recording studio only becomes uh, long-lived by accident. They don't plan, you know, it's, unless it's in an institution like the BBC. Mm. Yes. So, people tend to buy their tapes and take them away. And mm -hmm. the tapes that are left, and I think that's why there was such a, a, a strong element of bands who were signed to Factory, for instance, because they were local. And Factory yeah. had no, Factory Records had no storage space. Mm. There were too many unsold copies of... A Blue Monday. first <laughs> album lying yeah. around. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, and I think a lot, of the, a lot of the bands that couldn't afford to buy the tapes... They used to bet used to buy them for eighty quid, I think it was, yeah. and you pay forty quid to rent it for a year, right. and then the tape would go back into recycling for local bands or demo bands. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So yeah, I don't. I think you know if, if if I worked on an album project, I would encourage my client to buy the tapes and take them and store them, mm. because yeah, absolutely. there wasn't there yeah. wasn't anything like that, and it, it was ev obvious even then that archiving or storing it for for posterity was not it wasn't a commercial thought certainly at that point um and, and in the in the moment you don't think about the legacy do you certainly not no um i think if you're spending time especially as a, a musician or a creator if you if you're thinking about where you where your product's going to be or your art is going to be in 30 years time you're in the wrong business yes um but that said you are recording, yeah, I mean, it might be a, a slight digression, but when I, I enjoy using technology to record with, I'm not saying you should, everything should be recorded live, but it is a snapshot of where you're at. And if it is a snapshot of where you're at, it, even when I was a kid, revisiting and remastering stuff was beginning to, to rear its important head. To, you can't just go off old masters that have been played and used and used and used. Sometimes you do have to remaster or remix. It might have been better. I think there was, a, a, it's, things may have started off like that at some point to catalogue everything. I certainly know there was a catalogue because we got asked to, we got asked to write stuff into the catalogue, but it tended to be about where the raw take stock came from so it could be stuck on an invoice. What's right. it right. paid for? I think it, yeah, so, so very important takes being used as a door jam. Yeah, <laughs> finance driven. Baz, tell, tell us if you can about um, some of the sounds that you actually discovered on those tapes. You mentioned that you were able to listen to the the multi track of Level Terrace Apart, oh, yeah, and, you made, and you made some great discoveries in that. Well, that was astonishing. That. I mean, also, bear in mind, I was I had access to the sound engineer. He, Chris Nagel was training me. Okay. Right. And I was also, eventually, after a few months, I think I did a bit of work with Martin Hallett, but I certainly started working with Martin a lot. So I had access mm -hmm. to the producer. 
Um, as well as the room and a lot of the mics that were there. But yeah, there was... Uh, so, I, yeah, you know, I used to hang around, wait till everyone had gone home and then sneak in the control room and put on Lovell's <laughs> Terrace apart. And, um, yeah, the, the vocals are the... The first thing that struck me is there was not a single breath. Every every line and any gap in the line was had been spot erased to remove any ref, any anything to make you think the vocal was human. Wow. Why is the bedroom so cold? Turned away on your side. Is my timing that floored? Our respect runs so dry, yet there's still this appeal that we've kept through our lives. A love, love will tear us apart again. Love, love will tear us apart again. How would he have done that? Would he have literally just calculated exactly the space of tape that needed to be. Well, what you be... do is you, you, uh, you... There wasn't, on that machine, the studio, there wasn't a spot erase function. It had to be built in for that session. And it made them build it in. So uh, there's a little, like a little uh, Tandy switch and a bit of wire dangling out the bottom. You put the machine into a free roll and you engage the erase head. You mark where you want, like an edit. Yeah. Yeah. And then you, as you pull the tape with one hand very slowly, you hit the, the switch and it erases that track in that position. You, you uh, wouldn't dare do it in free running because right. you could run into... Yeah, and you could cut, cut the start off the next bit of vocal. Yeah, exactly. But uh. I mean, the way when the, when the erase head engages, if you, you can, if you imagine that's the tape, I'll do it to the camera. My knuckles were where the where it was starting and that's the erase head you could put it right on the erase head and as you engaged it move the vocal off it and it would naturally tail so if, okay. if you had something that was say abrupt or there was a sharp intake of breath so but to do that you have to i think you have to make a few mistakes first yes. there, there, there isn't any <laughs> undo button is there so i think for it to be done and the reason why they did it i spoke to chris and martin about it um Chris said that Martin made him do it. And Martin <laughs> said that he did it because the band wanted, and, and, and Ian in particular, wanted the vocal to sound somehow not unnatural, but uh, ghostly or disconnected. Right. Um, he didn't want it to sound cheesy. There were, there was, they, they were very interested in sounding original. Mm. And... Right. Um, what I find interesting now is if you listen to, say, a, a popular artist like Adele or any sort of modern ballady singer, it's smothered in breaths. Yes. Mm. Um, and it's, it's, it's a statement to the other because they want to prove it's not sampled or been tuned mm. because then it will be truncated and clean and will <laughs> sound unearthly. Yes. So now it sounds like singers are having dreadful asthma attacks. <laughs> <laughs> And it's, it's for us, it's, even though it's the opposite reason, it's a similar cultural reason. Mm. It's, it's an artistic choice. So I think that's quite interesting. Yeah. What, what, else, what else on that tape or, or other Martin, okay, so Martin Hannett tapes did, did you see? The drum sound, the yeah. drum sound in particular, uh, they recorded, and I'd heard the story, but I never quite believed it. They recorded each drum individually because, again, they wanted it to sound mechanical. So uh, one of the problems was that they, 
from Martin's point of view is that the spill of the snare drum onto the hi-hat mic. So he had in his mind isolating each instrument so it sounded like a drum machine with separate outputs. And the only way to get Steve to play it that way was, so they got the bass drum, uh, I think they used something like 12 mics on the bass drum, scattered around the room, some very close to the skin, some just outside the drum. Steve was meant to play the bass drum part, but remotely, but he couldn't do it. So they, they had the hi-hats wrapped in foam and the snare drum wrapped <laughs> in blankets and foam. So he played the drum parts, but so he could play that. So he had to build up each part. Wow. And when he drifted off beat, they because they had the gaps, they could drop him in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then when they did the snare drum again, so Martin was on the desk live to tape, because it's all on one track, mm-hmm. amalgamating all these different mics live. So he would change the balance of the mics. Now, to, to be honest, I can't really hear those changes unless <laughs> you really listen for them. fascinating so so that recording was in in its way Baz was was almost as complicated as as I'm not in love where it's it's like a a boiling down of dozens and dozens and dozens of of separate inputs bounced down onto one track amazing I I think yeah I mean I I know from talking to Martin I mean I I I, I used to interrogate Martin after every session (laughs) because he had lots to tell and I, I was very mindful that you, you would pick up a certain amount by working with him, but there were also puzzles to be solved that I'd uncovered <laughs> in my illegal use of the studio and finding these sounds. And um, but Martin would quite often, he was a great student of recording in general, and he was curious. Of, so he was curious about how any technology worked. So he's very curious about and wanted to use drum machines with separate outputs because he wanted to process them. And one of the things he said to me was, you've got all this technology here. You should, you know, it's all very well keeping it all live and BBC and jazzy. Mm -hmm. But if you want to sound like it's all been done before, then you have to be pure. If you want to sound new, you have to explore other avenues, even if it sounds rubbish, you know. Mm -hmm. So I think he he was a very good tutor in in bringing a balance between respecting the absolute needs of recording, but as a, an artist, and I think he was an artist, that you have to push boundaries to get further. Uh, so <laughs> yeah, that thing, using lots of mics. I, I mean, I mean, I've, I've, I spoke, I've spoken to Steve about it, and he said, yeah, I had a massive bruise on my thigh from when he was doing the hi-hats. <laughs> he had a big sponge on his thigh. <laughs> and... Um, but just to separate it like that, that you, normally you get the drum. I mean, if you've got a great drummer, you know, maybe a, a couple of hours to get the drum sound together and a couple of hours for the take and maybe a few drop-ins or edits. Yeah. But then it's done. But with that method, it inflicts loads of extra time and loads of extra pressure on the performer. Yeah. Yeah.
So we could only play one piece of the kit at a time or only record one piece yeah. of the kit. So, but as a drummer, you can't just do that one bit with one hand or one foot. He was having to do everything anyway, otherwise he couldn't have worked out what he was going to play, presumably. Yeah, exactly. But I also wow. think that it creates... I think this is a, I think this was the spirit of Strawberry. And comparing those two recordings, I think, I think in one of the interviews I've seen, I think it's when we were free on that album, we could then experiment. I think it's the way Godly and Cream put it. Yeah, because yeah. they were. Free, it was their space to do it. And if you, yeah. if you know that that studio, if that's the spirit in that studio, it's been underutilized. Although I'm sure it's fine for recording straightforward rock. Yes. But it, the setup of that studio was designed to push boundaries at the time, which is why it probably attracted. Top I mean, names, I'm sure it yeah. attracted clients because of 10CC success, but part mm. of that success was based on the sound you got there. Yeah. Mm. So, it's interesting. It sort of it does hint at a perhaps hitherto unknown sort of deeper relationship in some way between like the Eric Stewarts and the Martin Hannets. They don't seem to have anything in common in terms of their technical approach, but but the the, the sort of invention that the two of them shared or the two bands shared, there is a commonality there, isn't yeah, there? Yeah. Th- well, I think. I mean, it might be a bit of a a stretch is a simile or an analogy, but I think if the tools are there, you'll attract the people who are going to utilise it. Yeah. Right. I mean, I think it was very telling that the strawberry kind of struggled a bit in the early 90s because it didn't have a massive live room, which became after In the Air Tonight and the Peter Gabriel, which I love, by the way. There's nothing wrong with it. Yeah, yeah. It just didn't have that big live room. Um, And... As technology develops, and it, technology develops faster and faster, the studio found it hard to keep up. It didn't own a sampler, for instance, for ages. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, and the new creatives, the new Martin Hannitz, the new Eric's, <laughs> <laughs> they, um, the, the 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 tools weren't there initially. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it got back to that, which is why it ended up factory came back in when the Happy Mondays came back in, New Order came back in, um, Age of Chance came in, you know, the, the it kind of re-established itself. But I think uh, if the tools are there, if the, if the palette's there, then you're going to attract the artists that want to use it. Of course. And I, I always thought there was a connection between oh, those that I could hear. I think, you know, I hate the word when people go, it's in the DNA of the studio. It's not... <laughs> The DNA of the workers is in the studio because it's not being cleaned properly. <laughs> the, the, um, it's the culture in the yeah. studio. Yeah. Right. Um, so even, I mean, I'm sure you've come across Richard Scott as the, he was the chief engineer at Strawberry. He was very straight-laced and but he was mm. very, I mean, he was a Tommeister. You know, one of the very few Tommeisters around in Stockport. One of the um, very, sorry, well, I'm not familiar Tom with Meister. that. Tommeister is like a German qualification and the highest qualification for a studio sound engineer. Ah, okay. okay. And right. he was, you know, he was, in terms of personality, would have been the opposite to me. But his responsibility with me 
was to show me how to use that studio. He recorded a lot of the classical sessions, didn't he? Yeah, yeah. And um, whatever qualities I had were enhanced by exposure to those sort of sessions. Mm -hmm. I, I might not have liked it. It's like having to eat your greens as a kid. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, I think the, 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 there was a culture that connected. I mean, there was lots of other studios Martin could have chosen to go to with the factory stuff mm. that were maybe not as illustrious i mean it, and they martin did use other studios but they could have chosen to go to london for instance yeah mm. there were certainly studios that they could have used um and apart from the cost i think the attitude of factory was to keep it local yes. which is very similar to tennessee's mm. idea of, of build everything there mm. and not build a copy of i mean that's the amazing thing is that that studio was a copy of the or, or was actually designed by Eastlake Westlake, who built the Beach Boys studios. Okay. So their ambition was not to sound like oh. the Beatles, or the, which, to sound like the Beach Boys, but to steal the technology that built that West Coast sound. Do wow. you mean the, the brother studios that the Beach Boys owned, or, or studios uh, that the Beach Boys recorded in the 60s? There was no standard design for studios anywhere. Right. So right. it was all a bit ramshackle and homemade. So... Uh, the Eastlake-Westlake ethos was to build control rooms where the, the frequency response and reflection of the room was the same. So if you took a tape from a studio in Seattle that had been designed by them, right. and went to another studio to remix it or design another sound there, it would be compatible. It wouldn't, you could, say, put an orchestra in the live room, and as long as you use the same mics, in theory, you'll get the same acoustic response. How interesting. You'd mix one track at one at one place and go to another place, as long as the design was the same. And, um, yeah, I think the um, that, the ambition and the, the far-sightedness, I think, to join in that project from uh, 10CC says a lot, really. I mean, Abbey Road is a, is a heap of accidents, <laughs> which suits that studio, and I, I love that studio, and we all love those sounds. But it's it was inspired a lot, like in Rack Studios as well. That's again, it's oh yeah, I know. We'll put a low end there and a high end there, which was much more to do with where the sewage pipe was <laughs> rather than the acoustics. Yes, and and then you write a lot, you know, you get a load of hit records come out of there, and everyone goes in and goes, wow, yeah, the will put a low end in the studio, and there's actually <laughs> there isn't there isn't a reason. Whereas I think. Certainly Eric talked about it. Um, they wanted a studio that was technically equivalent and they had the money, so why not bring them in? So, mm. yeah, I think that I think that would have... And, and Martin was a big fan of 10CC, I know that as well. Okay. And he, and he, and he was a big student, as I said, but he knew a lot more about the recording of it. And obviously, mm. I hung around there and knew the stories about it.
That's so fascinating, Baz. Can I ask you what, if you can call to mind any of uh, your session highlights or even session lowlights from, from your what, time at my, Strawberry? Any stuff I did? Yeah, yeah exactly, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, sometimes, certainly working with, with art. I worked with the, the Cocteau Twins in there. Uh-huh. And uh, I think it was one of the last sessions in the studio, actually. And it was just amazing to watch Guthrie at work. Even though, really, I think he was such a big Martin Hannett fan, he just wanted to sit in the chair. <laughs> Basically, they hadn't written it when they came in. Okay. okay. <coughs> so, she, so Liz was scribbling her kind of gibberish lyrics kind of in the studio sort of thing? Liz didn't appear. She appeared first thing in the morning and then disappeared. Okay. And then um, uh, Guthrie was farting around on the keyboard a bit and playing around with the drum machine and then something else got set up. But most of the morning he spent talking about Martin. <laughs> <laughs> and then um, John came in and finished the recording. I think he came in that evening and finished and then spent the next week with him. I came in for a couple of days as well. But yeah, it was, it's, this is, it, this is quite an interesting thing as an aside. When you, when you're in that situation where you're setting up for someone and you, you have to kind of keep it simple, not because they're simple, but because if you go down too far on a limb, then they're playing catch up and you want them to move in seamlessly. So mm -hmm. I was trying to do all this. <laughs> Guthrie was going, right, I'm going to do this. <laughs> she like, well, I've got this funny instrument here. If you scratch it, it rattles. <laughs> How will we make that up? And I'd be like, I don't know. What, what's it in the context of? I don't know. I've not written it yet. And then when I come back to have a listen about three weeks, oh, not three weeks, three days later, it all sounded amazing. <laughs> it was like looking in the studio. And it's quite often the case, like John had done something amazing because mm. he's an amazing engineer. And I'd be like, all right. Yeah, I wouldn't have done that because <laughs> it's like being shown a car without wheels. <laughs> then being amazed if you've never seen one before, moving down the road. Oh, right, right, right. But quite often with those sort of sessions, I kind of quite liked... There was a couple of sessions where I, I recorded stuff, like the backing tracks, that then got sent somewhere else, maybe because the band were on tour or mm. a producer couldn't make it somewhere else. And I always found it interesting to listen back to how your recordings have been processed by somebody else. Yes. Because <clears throat> in those days, there was no instant contact. So it, occasionally writing a letter, going, you get a letter with you, or remixing someone else's work. And I got a diagram about how they'd angled the 57 on the snare drum. <laughs> and saying, when you do the next track, can you do it the same? I was like, Strawberry doesn't own a 57. We'll have to go and buy one. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, certainly watching Martin work and working with, but then also working, watching other engineers and producers work, recording my own stuff in there, definitely go down as a highlight. Actually, there were some quite surprising ones, that uh, some interesting ones. There was a heavy metal band called Dare, which okay. uh, I think was, uh, Darren was the keyboard player, I think, out of Thinders. It's his band, he's from Oldham. And um, Professor Brian Cox played in that band. Wow. Oh, yeah. So he, he turned up. I don't actually remember him. 
Um, I kind of remember an annoying kid who played keyboards, but I, <laughs> That's just my mind. Totally. Um, but the, the drummer used uh, a Simmons kit. Yeah, one of those electronic um, things. Yeah, but the producer put mics on the toms uh, to record a click. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Which was insane, but um, yeah, I watched him do it. And he was like, yeah, I can't... No, whatever the sound, you know, it doesn't. If it doesn't trigger, we can trigger it off the click of the mic. But actually, <laughs> oh. quite often use the click in the sound. Wow! Um, Did that yeah. record come out? We'll have to look for that one. The yeah. Dare album. There's interesting things. I remember, uh, you know, Risho Sakamoto came to have a look at the studio. Did he? <laughs> yeah, I was. I was really annoyed because I couldn't. I think I was at a gig, and then um, I was like, "God, I'll never meet him." <laughs> I was a massive fan, um, and yeah, I don't know. Like, yeah, low lights. I did a, a session for, um, let's say, a very religious band. And um, the band couldn't turn up, but the keyboard player who'd written the song did, and he played a guide track on on the Fender Roads. They actually used it on "Not in Love." That was still there. Ah, uh, wonderful! And so, and he played this beautiful song to a click track, and then he overdid it, overdubbed a little guide vocal, and then he had taught himself to play cello, violin, and viola, so he could play the string parts. And we built up this lovely, rich where he played all the strings individually and it put me in mind of that Joy Division set. But it sounded lovely. Yeah. And I made him move to the various positions ah. and left all the other mics up for the spill. So we got I that. wonder if you get like literally a 3D sense of yeah. space. And, wow. um, and then the guitarist came in and he had this lovely, I mean, I don't know, I can't remember what the mate was, but it's the best sounding acoustic 12 string I've ever heard. So we did a bit of that in stereo. Then the singer turned up, did his vocal and said, can you run off a monitor mix onto cassette? And I went, yeah, sure. And then he went, halfway through running this mix, he went, can you record it with Dolby? Because uh, I like stuff with Dolby on it so it sounds brighter. So I, when I, And that's how I listened to it in my car. I went, yeah, all right. And then, so he'd let me run it all the way through about three times. He kept going, can you make the vocals louder? Can you make the vocals <laughs> louder? And in the end, I was like, now I'm turning everything else down. All that beautiful work is now... Turning down, and oh. it got to. Uh, I put it down and recorded it for him, and he, there wasn't enough red lights on the cassette recording, so I, he turned up the recording level. So it was distorted with Dolby on. His voice was very loud, and then he played it on a ghetto blaster in the live room, and it was very sibilant and distorted. Surprise, surprise! <laughs> and he, <laughs> the, I, I was sat in the control room. And I just saw this ghetto blaster fly past the window, and control <laughs> <laughs> he came in and grabbed me by the throat. Oh my um, goodness! I didn't think it was very religious, Christian. Um, <laughs> so, go on. Who was the name of this band? I, I, do you know what? I, I, I couldn't tell you, and I just went. I was like, the manager went, oh, really sorry about that. I've never seen him do that. It's like, wow. I 
I mean, obviously, doing my own stuff there was great. And what was what was the name of your band then, or were you a solo act or what? No, I definitely wasn't solo. I couldn't have done it on my own at all. Uh, the name of the band was Rig, and um, yeah, I, I mean, from the moment I started there, I was I got into the ribs of Caroline, the uh, studio manager, to get me free time because I was right. working for nothing. Um, and, Baz, um, sorry, I've seen no end of fantastic photos from Rig. Uh, of uh, sessions in Strawberry on Twitter, I think. Is that right? Oh, no, definitely. Well, possibly on Twitter. Our guitarist does it on Twitter. I, I, there's an Instagram page with us on. But, um, yeah, we did. Well, our guitarist is a very keen photographer as well. Yeah. So um, there's some great photographs in there. Um, I mean, I say that. They're great photographs of the studio. Um, but, yeah, they, those sessions were interesting. There was one when... Uh, me and John Pennington, one of the other engineers there, were upstairs. We found a, it wasn't an oil drum, it was a paper, it looked about the size of an oil drum, but it was cardboard. And we'd found this somewhere, and it was when they were refurbishing the third floor. So we went up to the third floor, it's got low ceilings, it was completely open. And we are hitting it with a bass drum beater to get a bass drum sample. Wow. I think it was outrageously big. And massive and was absolutely unsuitable for the song but <laughs> on anyway but that's not the point another, is it there was, a, there was another one where we wanted the snare drum to sound a bit ringier and rather than take off all the gaffer tape because i was frightened it would fall to bits hmm. um we sampled a fire extinguisher being hit with a hammer <laughs> <laughs> And things like that were fantastic. Yeah. And um, a lot of the bands I recorded in there, they're people who were, you know, obviously local, but they, you end up seeing them again, they're working as managers or they're involved in the music industry. So, yeah, I, I, it was a very rich um, place to be brought up in and trained at. Mm. And, yeah, it, it attracted... And it had such history as well. If you if you found any tapes, I mean, there was a, a band called ESG that uh, Hannett mixed there. He recorded in New York. Three black girls playing drums, conga, and bass, all singing. Okay. And, um, they in that session, uh, Martin created a load of uh, sound effects for a track called UFO. And behind James Brown, it's one of the most sampled tracks of all time. Really? And it was done on the Marshall Time Modulators in, in rainy Stockport. <laughs> oh, it that's incredible. And it's, well, got, we've got some research there to dig out some of these tracks. Yeah. We can find most of them. A lot of them are, that you've mentioned will be out there, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. The UFO, the UFO, that UFO track, it's on, the, it's on Moody. Yeah, years later, I was I was in New York for the CMJ um, festival or the CGA, CGA, whatever. I was there trying to get my band signed. It nothing worked. Hmm. But, um, I went to see ESG and I met them afterwards, and they were so affectionate about Martin. And even though they had never been to the studio, they right. talked about the sound effects that Martin had created. Oh. And um, 
they told me a story that Martin tried to recreate the sound effects of an industrial landscape. Mm. So the echoes you get down train tunnels. Yes. <laughs> the sound of sirens far away echoing through streets. Mm. And as soon as she said that, I mean, I, I knew that you could probably work that out by listening to Martin's production. But as soon as she said it, I could hear Martin's voice in that. Mm. So, <laughs> and he, you know, he used to live in a house near where I lived in Levenjoon. And I remember him referring to a small ADT delay as Tunnel 32, which actually worked out later. It's the tunnel that goes between where he lived and where the Levenjoon market is now. Wow. Um, under the rail tracks which there. had which had the same delay in it as, as ADT wow And it's, it did that on the Marshall Time modulators. It's, and it's, I think that the influence that Martin had on my production has got a direct link. I mean, Martin, it's for, for me, Martin and the factory influence was massive. But also, I was going out in clubs in Manchester, obviously. Like the Hacienda, which yeah. you perhaps... <laughs> well, we were going to... We, we used to... Once, once, the, once we'd had a couple of factory bands in... I used to ring up on a Friday or a Thursday and pretend we had clients and said, oh, they want to come to Hacienda. So me plus four, and me and the rest <laughs> of the band are going. <laughs> Until Tina saw through it and told me not to do it again. Sure. But, yeah, it, but the, sound of, the sound of the Hacienda suited records, so I thought, but it suited the sound of records from Chicago, those, the dance records from there. It suited the Detroit techno records, but it's, you could tell when you when you heard records that had been mixed at Strawberry, they mm. seemed to work in there better than it probably was the imagination of youth. But yeah, I've spoken to other people who said the same thing that those there were certain records that sounded good in that space. They had a lot of influence on a a couple of generations of musicians, mm. and mm. not just from Manchester. You know that went further than that. But yeah, it's it's, in, it's interesting. I, I've talked about, say, the production process in "I'm Not in Love" to artists who are around now, and technically, to do what they did now would still be difficult. Yes, but would require so much less effort and imagination. Mm. Um, and I was quite surprised. And maybe we won't name names because it may not do their careers any good. But I was quite surprised that people whose music is very hard and bare but has production value were not just aware of that track, but were fascinated by the invention in that track. There are very few records that have sold because of actually because of how they sound. We like to imagine that some do, and I think the sound of "I'm Not in Love" sold probably. I think it's. I would hazard a guess it's fifty-fifty the sound to the quality of the song. And don't yeah. get me wrong, I, I'm with you there. Song. I think. And the well, same with Bohemian Rhapsody. I think 
that's that song could be nonsense if it didn't sound as good as it does. Mm-hmm. I mean, it is nonsense. It's fantastic, <laughs> it, nonsense. but it's beautiful nonsense. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, um, yeah. Th- those two are always compared and cut within months of each other in 1975. It's it's quite extraordinary, isn't it? Th- I think technology had just reached a point, and that that's I'll, br- I'll bring it back to that point Martin made. If it's there and you don't utilize it, and you're attempting to do a new sound. Then you're shortchanging your fans and you're shortchanging yourself as an artist. Mm. And I think that's, I was just saying it, I think there's, you know, I've heard a lot of people say, oh, it's so much easier now. You've got it all, you've got a whole studio. Yeah, you have got a whole studio on your laptop, but you've still got to use it to get anything out of that. You've still got to have the songs in your mind, yes, the discipline to write them, and have a grasp of what sounds are. Um, the drummer in the streets, Cassell's the beat maker. He's he's a, a producer in his own right, but his son's a drummer, and he was moaning to me that his son's deliberately distorting bass drums, <laughs> and it drives him mad because it's not got any bass in it. But he knows it's the culture of where he's at, yeah. And it's just a continuation of that bending the rules technically. You know, there's going to be a point probably in his late twenties where he's going to go. No bottom end than any of bass drums. <laughs> in that time, we've probably written 20 great records that will have sold because of that sound. Yeah, no, right. absolutely. I have, this is fascinating. Going back slightly to what you were saying about things hitting a kind of technical peak in the mid-70s, arguably, I'm Not In Love, Bohemian Rhapsody. Shortly after that is an album that, that Paul and I started talking about a couple of years ago as the very reason we're sitting here doing a podcast in the first place we started talking about just one album and it's become yeah. our custom to ask all of our learned guests a have they heard of it and b what they think of it what are your thoughts on consequences Um, do you know what? <laughs> uh, until very recently, I avoided it. Did you? Yeah, I, and it's there isn't any good reason. There isn't any good reason, but um, I do this a lot with artists. If somebody tells me I should listen to something, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> it's terrible, isn't it? So I, I don't... Um, it's not an album that's terribly close to me at the moment, and now I'm being embarrassed by my... Oh no! Oh, you don't feel guilty. You're in. You're in a very, very big majority there, Baz. I have to say, I, I'm. Su- I'm surprised people weren't telling you to avoid it like the plague. No, it's. Uh, I think. Okay, so there's. Uh, there are some bands in. People go that band should be massive, hmm. and you listen to them and you go, yeah, they should. They've got great songs. They've got great, but whatever it is about them, but they always end up being the bands that other bands like, but punters don't. Yeah. And I think there are certain records that musicians like, and maybe even the band that made it like, but the audience don't, the more general audience. And I, I think Consequences, if I think about it, has only been recommended to me by engineers. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's like a, like it's like an audiophile demonstration record. Yes, yeah. I think... Uh, it's interesting as well that there are, as a live engineer, there are certain records you use to reference a PA system. There's yes. lots of 
technology to make sure it's all working. Colour of spring that springs to mind yeah, as a typical is, one, yeah. I did used to use that. Yeah. Um, but the thing is what I found is that I started to use records that I didn't particularly like, but I respected the production on. And it was about the same time that I kind of lost a bit of passion for doing live sound. And it was part of the problem is that you start using something and you're forgetting, or I was forgetting that the music and the artist is more important. So what if it doesn't sound quite perfect? Mm -hmm. No one's handing out prizes at the Ashton Witchwood on a Tuesday night for your, the high, high fidelity nature of your mix. But they <laughs> people have paid good money to go and see them knock out a few rock and roll classics. Yes. And I think I was guilty of that. But more recently, I've, I've started using, and the technology's got better as well, so you, don't, you could almost just walk up to it. But I've started using records that I really like, that I know are flawed. So if I can hear the flaw in the record, I probably know the system's all right. If I can't hear the flaw, well, that's probably all right as well. But it's, Great point, that. I did an album that I recorded at Sweet 16 in Rochdale, which is another lovely studio, or was another lovely studio, with lots of history. And I brought it to Strawberry to mix um, because the band had recorded at both places, but like the mixes we got out of Strawberry. And some of the mixes I did of, on that at that studio were kind of frightening about how deep that studio could go in terms of sonic depth and how rich you could make it sound in there, wow. which is probably, I'm not saying it's the best artistic work I've done, but sonically some of the best work I've done. Wow. That band was called Mighty Force. Um, there was another band that I was just engineer on called Ashley and Jackson that Martin Mosscrop was pro producing. And even the monitor mix on that, I was absolutely blown away by. Hmm. And it can't have been the desk. It was it was the Mitsubishi desk then. It wasn't the Helios surround desk. Right. Um, it was the same 24 track, but it certainly wasn't the 16 track that they've been using in I'm Not In Love, but there was something about the control room, and I think that the Eastlake-Westlake design, where you, you knew how far to... You could hear where layers were, as well, and other people's work that was done there. I mean, I think the Happy Mondays album, Bummed, is a, it's one of Martin's best works, even though it's not meant to be artistic and clever and the layering in that that uh it's a very subtle album strangely enough you're rendering that scaffolding dangerous I'm going to have to revisit it because I, um, I bought it many, many moons ago and um, it just felt like a weak, a weak first attempt at thrills, pills yeah, and bellyaches. I, 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 I love that album 
and I didn't like Thrills and Spills. And when I revisited Thrills and Spills more recently, I was like, God, it's really good. What's wrong with me? Yeah. <laughs> but was, then I went, you know, I went back to Bummed as well. And it maybe because I was working on it, maybe it was because I was T Boy on it. Yes. I, I wasn't. I couldn't do anything else on it because I was in the throes of recording and rehearsing with my own band. So I used to leave, but I'd stay for as long as I could, and then go. I'm getting, I've got to go, otherwise that rehearsal room that I can't afford is going to be even more unaffordable. <laughs> yes. So yeah, it, it was a it was a good time, and I learned a lot from Martin then. I learned a lot from John Pennington, who was engineering on it. And, and in rapid succession after that, we got. Um, New Order came in to do a couple of edits and some remixes. A, a, a run of smaller bands that came in that I worked with that I seemed at that point to have, have, have got to grips with where I was and I started doing a lot more work. But it, it seemed a very... I've listened back to this stuff recently as well. And I, <clears> it's, there was something about the nature of that, the design of that room that allowed you to do it. That I think when people say it's easier now, I think actually it was easier then, even though you had to work a bit harder. There aren't many studios with that kind of... Dare I say it, DNA. <laughs> well, you can say it. I'll only, <laughs> make, I'll only make that joke that makes everyone feel sick again. But, um, I just I, Possibly in... I think I In the bricks, made, maybe. In the bricks. Yeah, yeah, yeah well... Or the uh, the Vera Duckworth fake Yorkshire stone on the, the <laughs> yes, which was which was deliberate to cause reflections around your ears to enhance the top end, right? So that you didn't have to overamp the top end. I mean, mm. it, you know, that's very clever, mm. and it was a feature of every East Lake West Lake design. I, w- I would have loved to have gone to work in an American studio and taken a tape from Strawberry to to there to test it out for myself, but I, you know. That's why Paul McCartney came in. Yeah. Um, I mean, there. I mean, there is a story about. I can't remember which. Um, there was a. There was an American artist anyway that had recorded at the Beach Boys studios that came in and just went, "This is amazing." Mm. After playing one tape in there, I, I'll try and remember that. There will be other people who know that story better than me. I wasn't there for that. Sure. Sure. Um, Can you remember the the last session or the last time you were inside? Strawberry, Baz. Inside, I've never been inside. Um, inside strawberry. Um, <laughs> I don't mean inside, time... inside. Inside, I mean inside strawberry. It's not porridge, mate. Um, <laughs> so I set up and started the recording with the Cocteau Twins. I think John Pennington actually did the very last session in there. Wow. Um, mm-hmm. Which was either that, although I've heard a few. I mean, it was open for a few more weeks, but whether or not anyone knows. but I've heard a few people claim they were the last in but the way I want to remember that studio is when the perfect perfect setup would be Thursday morning having to get in there for seven o'clock to let the piano tuner in <laughs> for the BBC session always grumpy I mean we all have to get up <laughs> and they'd come in and we'd have to it would be before the producer and it was all this palaver about could we move the piano no I've just tuned it and then the BBC come in and they'd want it moved. So just the blind man's just <laughs> been in and tuned it. He says we can't move it. All that. And you do the BBC session and you keep an eye on that. And then you get some unknown 
bunch of bright-eyed kids who'd saved up for three months <laughs> to come and do the demo, and I'd do that. Yeah. yeah. And the contrast between the two, and especially if it was a band that seemed to have some quality about them or something interesting about them, and or, say, Chris Nagel bringing in one of his acts in or Martin bringing in some interesting act yeah. or whatever it was, you know, the day and night time, the contrast between the two. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, I just those those memories of when it was just, I don't know, it was a very special place for the people that were in there. And probably there were times when it was, before then, it was probably more productive and financially successful. Yeah, yeah. But um, I wasn't there then. <laughs> Baz, what do you think is the single most amazing sound, the your pet sound that was ever recorded at Strawberry? Oh, uh, well, it's, it is it is between I'm Not In Love and Love Will Tear Us Apart. It, in it, it, the, that vocal drone in "I'm Not in Love" and the and the structure of especially of the extended version, but the structure of that song, the more you listen to it, the more mind blowing it is. But it's the resonance of all those vocals hovering around mm. that um, every frequency ticked. Yeah, and and also, and none of them as well. There's lots of cancellations going on. Yes. Um, but it's the ba 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 that section and the breakdown of it. But that sound and it's because I can hear the plate reverbs in it. I can hear that studio in it. Um, on Love Will Tear Us Apart, there's a a piano and a Hammond playing root third fifth and the octave all the way through the song in a drone. Oh, and, is that? And it it doesn't. You can't hear it on the record. But I know because I've mixed it. <laughs> wow. If you take it out, it sounds empty. It's just, it's a resonant. And when I asked Martin about it, he said they recorded it with a, a brick on the sustain pedal of the grand piano <laughs> and the, the Hammond as loud as it could be. And they had the studio doors and control room doors open. So there was a spillage between the control room and the live room. And vice versa. Which the resonant note of the studio is captured and triggered by that. So it's turning, physically creating a synthesizer. Yeah. Analog loop synthesizer. Yes. Wow. Just with the natural uh, resonance of the room. Yeah, and... Good grief. So I tried that out in a studio in Ireland when I when I was producing a record, and it, we kept it on the edge of feeding back, and you could hear notes appearing and fluttering up and disappearing. Mm. That when you listen back to it, happened in different places. So you hadn't recorded it happening; you were creating the events for it to happen inside your ears. God. So it's almost like it's almost like psychoacoustics. This isn't it? Yeah. It's well. It's exactly that, and I think both those sounds are very. Yeah, I mean, that, and there are quite a lot to choose from that I'm fond of. The, the, in uh, Rope for Luck, the, there is a drone that was on the, doing that because it was on the guitar. Mm. And um, <laughs> they overdubbed it at Strawberry because it didn't sound right where they recorded it. And in the original demo, it's on the head of every bar. It's like every two bars. Bang! 
and then they took it out when they mixed it. But the sound of that was <laughs> another fantastic Martin. Mm -hmm. Mics all over the studio, this beautiful natural mono sound mm. spreading out into it. And it's, it, I think it happened four times on the, <laughs> the end mix. <laughs> yeah. and, and then there was a, a track Martin was doing with the high where he had a wall of amplifiers in the vocal booth with the door open with each amp mic'd and then room mics proceeding out in a V from there, <laughs> going into the dead air of the studio in the little live drum booth. And the, it suited Andy's finger picking so well. You can hear it, but you don't know it's there. Yeah, yeah. when you know it's there it's like it's warm this side it swirls around but yeah the, it is the i'm not in love section yeah. and it is yeah that that drone and it's almost because you can't hear it's there mm -hmm. but it, it definitely is yeah but oh. yeah oh buzz this this is sexy talk The thing for me with Strawberry was, because I was learning, I was kind of, I didn't, um, there wasn't a point where I had to be a producer engineer there until the very end. Um, and all the rest of the time, I was completely, when I was doing my own stuff, I was completely free <clears throat> to experiment and do stuff. Mm -hmm. um, but that, what the lessons I learned there were, they're invaluable for later, but you didn't know exactly when. They were like a little magic box. Years later, I did this album with a band called Watercress, who were an acoustic sort of folksy band from Belfast. Hmm. And they recorded in this little studio in the wilds of Ireland. And they wouldn't use anything digital. <laughs> and they got out. I'm not in love and went, we want this vocal sound. Just like, you know. Okay. <laughs> Good luck with that. <laughs> what we did, what we did to do it was, Hannah had told me about the trick you could do to create the phase displacement, and whilst you can't create that massive layering of vocals, if you record four sets of stereo backing vocals mm. and then bounce it and do it again and bounce it and then bounce the two bounces together, you get a semblance of it. Right, right, right. But knowing how to do that. Before, because if you just can't refer to, right, we'll get, yeah, we'll copy the tracks, put them slightly out of phase, blah, 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 there we go, edit it in time. If you can't do that, you've got to be you, those skills to make decisions and yes. to be experimental is what I learned at Strawberry. Mm -hmm. Editing two inch, actually putting a razor blade through it, you've got to be certain when you do that. <laughs> and that's what I learned at Strawberry. And that, the thing of spot erasing. Being knowing to, I mean, they were doing it as an artistic trick, but sometimes you have to do it. Mm -hmm. And nowadays, it's just you won't be an issue. Yeah, and it doesn't, and you can undo as well, can't you? Yeah. So the, the <laughs> knowing when you have to do it, yeah. trying not to make the mistake to put yourself in that situation, but having the confidence, and that's what 
you learn the strawberries if you're going to do something make sure you've got a handle on doing it yeah don't go down a path because you get trapped in the analog world so i think it's suited i think i don't know if i suited it when i arrived but i've pretty quickly learned that i had to suit it <laughs> i had to step up to what was there and take advantage of what was there but yeah it was a magical place yeah and we've loved hearing your memories of that baz and uh Best of luck with your gigs with the streets coming up soon. Yeah, yeah, in in the new year, rehearsals in hopefully sooner rather than later. Good, but I hope that goes really well, and uh, and uh, I hope you you manage to surf some kind of up wave uh, when the effects of the, the effects of the pandemic are a bit less kind of pun- punishing. I think for everyone in in the entertainment, someone called it. I loved it. It's a great phrase because it's all of us. Everyone in the night culture makes it cool. It's like every barman and chef and and people who go out at night. Yeah. Of really yeah. No, it's yeah. We can all go for so many walks in the park, but there's nothing quite like having a few drinks and having a dance or singing. I, mean, I don't dance anymore, not mine. <laughs> or singing along. I find it very emotional to listen to live recordings at the moment. Um, right. Have you heard that uh, the uh, the blossoms with Rick Astley covering the Smiths? Oh yeah, oh, yeah. I, I, there's yeah, a, yeah. there's a great version of Ask going going around, and well, it's fantastic. I, I, listened, uh, I listened to There Is a Light, right? And it, I was almost in tears because I think he sings it better than Morrissey. <laughs> the, the band themselves have got, I mean, they're massive fans. You can't play it that well if you don't love it. Yeah, it's, they're not covering it; they're putting their souls into it, mm. and the mm. audience, whatever. <laughs> whatever dynamic and sheer joy you know, isn't there yeah and it honestly that's i saw grown men cry this summer hmm. hardened stage managers from gritty festival <laughs> sight of two thousand raggedy pissed up teenagers come <laughs> running across a field because you know it's a privilege to work in what we do and but i think it is important you know we're not we're not miners or fishermen or doctors or nurses, but we're the people that they need to go and unwind. So, yeah, yeah. thank you very much for your You good too. Day. Thanks ever so much, mate. Yeah, See you. Yeah, thank bye you. Bye. See you, mate. Do you cry out in your sleep? All my failings exposed Yes, a taste in my mouth As desperation takes hold Just that something so good Just can't function no more But love, love will tear us apart again Love, love will tear us apart again been listening to the consequences podcast produced by paul mcnulty and sean mccreevy thanks for listening